Hello everyone, happy Thursday, and welcome to another episode of Quandaries and Sundries. I hope you're all doing well and had a great day so far. Today I'm going to be calling this just a random day full of my ramblings and fun things I've discovered, because there's some stuff I just want to talk about for fun. So I hope you enjoy, and let's just hop right into this. Let's talk about some dinosaurs. Because when I saw this news story, I couldn't stop laughing, and I just had to share it with everyone. When we go to a pond, we see an adorable duck, with bright pops of color on its legs and beak. It really makes it stand out, and that's common across the entirety of all birds. But as we all know, birds are descendants from dinosaurs, and over the last few years we have been finding out that they are more similar than we originally first thought. First, we came to find that dinosaurs had feathers. But now we might have found out something interesting that they shared in common, the same bright color schemes as their current living relatives, ducks. Now while we can't 100% confirm this as brighter colors deteriorate over time and don't show up as well in fossils, but if we look at all of the dinosaurs' descendants, I mean birds, lizards, and reptiles, we see a common pattern. By studying over 4,000 species of birds and a few turtle species, we slowly built their genetic code and their genetic family tree backwards as far as they, we could go and discovered that each common ancestor had a 50% chance of having bright colors on parts of their bodies that had soft tissue, like the legs of most birds. And when you look at a T-Rex, half of the samples we have found point to the species having soft tissue all around the neck and face and then on the legs, meaning that there was a 50% chance a bird's ancestor has the same bright color pigment disposition. Then that means that there is a highly likelihood that a T-Rex had bright colors on their legs and face. And if we look at another dinosaur, let's say the Triceratops, it had notable areas that would have had a pop of color too, just like the beak of a duck, they had a beak, as well as the tips of its frill, containing the same type of keratin you'd find in a bird's beak. And we have found that the frill was mostly hard tissue, with spots in the middle made of soft tissue. So in theory, a triceratops had spots on its frill that were brightly colored. On the other end of the spectrum, the researchers found that there was a 0% chance that such color pops existed on claws or feathers. And this lines up when we look at the way birds get their colors. They get it from the foods they eat, specifically in their rich diet of fruits, vegetables, and some bugs and invertebrates. Birds that have a diet of mainly meat have a less chance of developing colors on their bodies. So not only does this paint an interesting picture of how dinosaurs looked, but it also paints a better picture of how their diets must have looked like. This was a silly discovery I just had to cover because imagining a T-Rex with bright orange features. I just, I just couldn't stop laughing. It sounds so adorable for such a big, menacing, terrifying creature. If you have made it this far into the show, I'd really appreciate if whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or whatever platform my voice is transmitting to you through, please subscribe or follow me. And also, I love any feedback, so don't feel shy to tell me what you think, whether it be through the YouTube comments, whether you're watching the YouTube version, or just on my social media. Now let's get right back into it.
Let's end this story on a fun yet scary hypothetical. I bet you've been seeing about this whole SpaceX rocket crashing to the moon thing next month. Well, according to a recent revelation, it's actually not SpaceX rocket. It's a Chinese rocket. But all over the internet, I've heard people talking about whether it could destroy the moon or it could be the end to us all and all this biblical end of the world nonsense. So let's set this record straight and set your mind at ease. And then let's take it to the extreme and really talk about what it would take to destroy the moon and what it would mean for us. I'm saying, I'm just saying this is not me wanting to destroy the moon. Just letting you know this is all a fun hypothetical because I find it fascinating. So first, let's picture the size of the moon. Let's take its radius, for example, and place it on the Earth. In the middle of nowhere, let's say the Australian outback, the moon's radius would take up all of Australia and most of New Zealand. This tiny rocket will not explode or send the moon hurtling towards us. It is just a small blip. It's a small tickle for the moon. Now how about if we use nukes instead? Well, let's use the nuke that was dropped on Hiroshima as an example. Because it's an example everyone knows, and it's all in all of our history textbooks. No matter what culture, religious, or whatever background you come from, we all hear about it. It was a 15 kiloton payload. Now, you don't need to know what that means. We are just using it as an example to compare. It's just a, a base to compare with all the other examples we're going to use today. Now, to destroy New York City, it would take about 800 kilotons. Now, when we mention nukes around the world, every country has different nukes. Some countries have newer nukes, some have older, some have them stored over from the Second World War, etc., etc. The power of the nukes really depends on the uh, prosperity of the country and like how wealthy and powerful it is, but that's just a side tangent. So let's use the most extreme example, a.k.a. the most advanced nukes, which are owned by the United States and Russia. They are equivalent to 100 kilotons apiece. And according to what I could find, there are about 14,000 nukes around the globe. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, but compared to the 70,000 there were in the 1980s, I think we have done a great job at disarmament. Now, putting all that into a calculator... That is equal to 7 million kilotons. Hiroshima was only about 0.0002142% of that. Now, could we destroy the moon with all that power? Well, yes and no. You would only need about a third of that, around 3 million kilotons. But interestingly, that doesn't matter because let's say... We sent all the world's nukes towards the moon to blow it up. In the vacuum of space, they wouldn't leave a dent at all. Radiation sure would still spread, but the entirety of the explosion would be canceled. Honestly, if we wanted to get rid of all the world's nukes, it'd be a really great idea. And when I talk about this, I'm not kidding. Since there is no air in space for the shockwave to travel in, that means all the power is reduced completely to zero. So could we do it? Well, in order to do it, we would need to drill hundreds or thousands of holes in the surface of the moon, at least 300 kilometers or 186 miles deep, and drop 34 trillion kilotons and set them off simultaneously. 
which is impossible at our current technological state. To give an extreme example, and why I wouldn't worry, Hiroshima is only 0 0.000000000441% of that. And our current world stockpile is only 0.000002058%. It's legit, logistically not possible. And with the way we are disarming, I don't think it's possible in the future unless... We go to a huge world war, and then we start making more nukes, but I don't think that's possible. The UN's doing a great job at disarmament. But back to my hypothesizing. Interestingly, if the blast wasn't strong enough, sure would send some chunks hurling towards the Earth. But, not extinction level, but because of the moon's gravity, it would either reform into a smaller moon or into tons of smaller little tiny moons. It would kind of be a little cute to see that in the sky. Or in the middle case scenario, instead of the worst case scenario, we would have a ring of moon debris around our planet like Saturn. So that would be interesting too. However, it would drastically affect our climate and the tides. They would never be the same. The seasons would be altered, nights would be far darker, and our days would be changed. No more 24-hour days. At the end of it all, I don't see the moon being blown to smithereens and then hurling into us. The only way that would happen is if the sun would explode or some disastrous event of cosmic proportions that we could e couldn't even fathom. So I wouldn't worry about some small, tiny rocket hitting the moon. Like I said earlier, it would be just a tickle. I mean, the moon is used to being hit by asteroids and meteors. So I still wouldn't worry. I hope you really enjoyed this fun little hypothetical experiment. It makes you really realize that we won't have to worry about the moon crashing into us anytime soon. Let's wait for the heat death of the universe first. Well, that is all I got for today. Thank you so much for listening, and do not forget to share this to all those or anyone in your life who could use a scientific moment in theirs. I hope you all join me again tomorrow for another episode of Quandries and Sundries. Stay safe, stay sane, and stay healthy. This is Van Masterson signing off till we meet again.